It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something with your own head. Beat it up and I've got no peace. The ladder fucking clatter with the fear fight down. Make fire in the fire, but the city's other gangs and the government for hiring the combat site. Break it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you are getting down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. And don't you forget it, that's right, this is Dr. Bones, but not that scary guy from the Jamaican 1991 movie called The Horrible Dr. Bones. I'm talking about the wonderful Dr. Bones, that's me. <laughs> the one with the good heart, who doesn't look crazy. No, a little mysterious. You look a, a little, little You look a little mysterious. A little exotic. Maybe I don't a little know, exotic, something. but you don't look insane, like no, that character from bit. the movie. Just a little bit. <laughs> well, this is the hour of doom, ladies and gentlemen. No, it's the hour of bloom. Oh. Doom and bloom. And it was one of those. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome. Yeah. To the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. We are a tower of truth in a tainted world. And I am Joel MD, indeed, Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner. That's what the ARNP stands for, and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the dynamic. Duo, the medical matrimony, the spectacular spouses. And we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. And you know what? We have a new tool to help you keep it together, and that is our mobile-friendly website. Yay! Brand new mobile-friendly website. It is something else. Well, it, it was an interesting build because instead of just seeing the whole website when you're on a, a phone, it actually stacks what's called tiles. So sections of the website are stacked upon each other instead of being next to each other. Huh. So we had to not only look at, look at it from the standpoint of viewing on a computer, but what would it look like on a phone? So Right, I a lot of people are using the phone to oh, check these things out More nowadays. than 50% now, but I wow. didn't want it to be boring. So many of these mobile-friendly websites are just, they went from interesting to just plain it's just white background and there's just there's not a lot of interesting colors and things on it so i still wanted people to have a lot of different choices of things to find um it was actually great to be able to put 
our media, our social media, which we'll be talking about in a, in a minute, um, icons up at the top. So, you know, if people go to the website, it's sort of a main page where you can get to our Facebook group. Uh-huh. You can get to our even our iTunes podcast feed for this show has a little microphone with a pair of headphones on it. That's the um, Apple iTunes Store feed, and you can see every show that we have put up on Blog Talk right there in iTunes. Jeez Louise, that's more than 300. Yes. Maybe close to 400 at this point. It's been a while, but they're all there. Wow. Easy to find. Uh, We also have uh, the RSS feed to the website Mm -hmm. where you can pull articles if you have another website. I mean, you probably a good idea to ask us first, but we always say yes. <laughs> so share our articles, no problem. Um, we have our uh, regular Facebook, our Doom and Bloom. You mm-hmm. can just click on that little normal Facebook. Our right. Twitter is there. Uh, what else do we put there? Our Blog Talk feed. So you yep. can go to Blog Talk to see the shows. And the thing about Blog Talk is you see our show descriptions. Right. That is the interesting thing. But if you're on a mobile phone and you just know that you want to listen to the next one, uh, iTunes is great because they have them all in order. They just don't have the description. Right. So that's also know, a sign up for our newsletter, want. probably. Yes, of course. A uh, couple different places for that. Uh, an easy page to get to our store, to get to our About Us. Let's see. Um, yeah, who the hell are we? That's, <laughs> I know. You know, who are these should, people? <laughs> why should you listen to anything that we say? Matter of fact, you shouldn't listen to anything that we say. I That's put my a advice. New, a new picture <laughs> of us uh, with, I think, a really cool background. It was really pretty, a forest with oh. a beautiful blue sky. Well, the thing about he, seeing the words yeah, doom and blue. put the background there? I mean, don't we have enough pictures no, of us with in a forest? I, <laughs> we have a million pictures. Listen, I wanted this website to be interesting to the eye and interesting to the curiosities of folks. I also explained at the top what the heck, you know, basically survival medicine is and, and what this website is. Because, again, people go on doom and bloom. They're like, well, what the heck is this? So right at the top, you have an explanation. explanation and then under that, you have our mission. Good. To put a medically prepared, prepared person in every family. That's right. Gosh, so people darn see that right. right off the bat. Why was this website created? Mm-hmm. What are they going to find in it? And right. then different pieces of the puzzle to help them well, get awesome to where they job. need to it be. Well, job. It looks great. And it, it is interesting. And I, I was just so upset about having to do mobile. We were being punished by Google. Uh, if your website is not mobile friendly, they don't like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know. You don't rank as Oh, please, with this whole ranking. Uh, you know, when you get to a certain age, and I'm not elderly, however. I am. I would prefer that the world just not change so much. <laughs> Can we just, I new operating systems and new buttons. And every time, uh, what was it, Windows came up with a new, you know, Windows 10 or Windows 8, and it, it just it, changes everything. And the buttons are not in the same place. Yes. Just 
Leave everything alone. Unrecognizable. Please stop this. And don't make me have to do my website again <laughs> for some new invented technology ah, that I, I, I can't even imagine. Time right marches now. on. You know, We're progress, progress, be reading progress. Reading our, our websites on our hands or something yes. someday or our forearms. I don't know. Yeah. Or put it in a contact, From our glasses, contact right. lens those, or something. Those yeah. Google glasses. Or, or right. a little implant I in your not, brain. I am not changing that I'm website expecting. again. <laughs> All right. I swear. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> Friends and neighbors. Yes. <laughs> have you been injured in an accident? With a cantankerous cougar, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only, obviously. Yes. <laughs> and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Standard and modern medical care. That's the way to go in normal times. But will you know what to do if somebody gets sick or injured off the grid? Well, you can help save lives in a disaster. You can show that someone out there knows what to do in times of trouble. And while you're proving that you can be that someone, consider getting some supplies and a quality medical kit to go along with the knowledge you're accumulating and what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster, and they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, cost, with anybody else's stuff, I dare you, or just ask anyone who's ever bought one, and you'll agree our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. Hey, you know, we learn as much from you as you do from us. That has been so obvious <laughs> just in the first few minutes of the show. So, <laughs> hey, why not, Scott, send the message to old Dr. Bones and a lovely nurse, Amy. It's so easy. It's so easy. I knew you were going to sing. And here's Nurse Amy to I'll, tell you how. I'll snap for you. <laughs> I'm not singing. I do that too often, and yeah. it probably makes people shut off the show. <laughs> anyway, anyway, how you can get in touch with us. Well, first of all, you can go to doomblim.net and click on any of those icons. Yeah. <laughs> I also have a Contact Us page, so that's a really easy thing to do. However... If you would like to do it directly, our email is drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at Survival Medicine Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. That's a great group. People share things that are going on in the world and, hey, what would you do about this if we didn't have modern medicine? Uh, very interesting. In fact, there's a couple of things now on the group about Ebola. Yes. And I think you're going to be writing an article. Yes, indeed. About Ebola. Oh, we're going to talk about it. Very the first soon. thing we're going to talk about on the show. Oh, okay, great. Today. Awesome. I didn't know that. A little bit. Yay. All right. You can also find us at our Facebook page, which is Doom and Bloom. And you can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, DR Bones Nurse Amy. That's right. And we put up, a, we have a video up just recently, right? The volcano preparing. Yes, mm -hmm. and I'm working on. Actually, I will get your tick video up today. Oh, ah, okay. Yes, you know it's the time of year. And where... I don't mean ticks like yeah. your eye twitching. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean ticks. Ticks that bite you. Those nasty it little cause Lyme disease puggers. and things like that. Well, you know it. It is getting very close to the end of the 
uh, school year, and so people are going to be out camping, and so it is important to oh, yeah. take note of these things. And we also want to mention our uh, other podcast, American Survival Radio, is broadcast from a number of land-based radio stations throughout the United States. And this show, uh, The Survival Medicine Hour, is broadcast on KYAH, land-based radio, in the great state of Utah. We hope you'll listen in as we educate and entertain you. That is, edutain you <laughs> on the mysteries of austere medicine. Well, now, now that you've mentioned the other podcast... If you do want to find it, folks, it's at GCNlive.com. That's right. American Survival Radio. There you go. Um, the Ebola virus, indeed, as promised, here, here's the latest on that. It has hopped out of the dustbin of recent epidemic history, and it is now in the news again. Sure enough, this time in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where it originated. We reported originally on the 2014 epidemic in West Africa even before it reached its 100th case. And that one eventually infected more than 28,000 people, killed more than 11,000 of them. It was a terrible, terrible epidemic for that area. Now, our articles were eventually turned into a book, which is called the Ebola Survival Handbook, and not my title, but the publishing company's title. Mm -hmm. And it did eventually become one of Amazon's top 100 books in October of 2014. Actually hit the New York Times bestseller list in health. I think you can still find it on Amazon, a matter of fact. And I figure that it's been a while. You've probably forgotten what the big deal about Ebola actually was. So here's what you need to know about the deadly virus and what advances have been made since all those folks died so uh, those uh, a few years ago. Uh, Ebola is known officially as Ebola hemorrhagic fever. It's a viral disease. It has a high fatality rate, and it starts off with bats, fruit bats usually, as the natural reservoir for the disease. That means that it does little or nothing to the bats, but it kills other things. It kills people that eat the bats or non-human primates like monkeys, gorillas, chimpanzees, things that are human-like. And uh, the virus has been also found even in animals like antelopes and porcupines. I didn't even know they had porcupines in Africa, <laughs> but apparently they do have porcupines there. Uh, now, somewhere down the line, somebody decided they would eat a bat that was incompletely cooked, and they got infected and caught, started the whole epidemic. Now, the virus, by the way, is named after, indeed, the Ebola River in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the virus was first recognized in 1976. That's where the many of the outbreaks have occurred. And the current one that's there now is the ninth Ebola outbreak that has been seen in the country. Now, viruses mutate, right? And there are now probably about five known Ebola species of virus, four of which are deadly to humans, and the fifth causes illness in animals, but apparently not in humans. The deadliest one kills 60 to 90% of the victims, and unfortunately, that's the one they're currently wrestling with in the Congo. Now, symptoms of Ebola usually appear from, oh, I don't know, about 2 to 21 days, usually about 8 to 10, honestly, but a range of 2 to 21 days after being exposed. And these typically remind you a little bit of uh, like a, the flu or the stomach flu. We would get weakness, fever, muscle aches, diarrhea, vomiting, stomach pain. Fools a lot of medical personnel thinking they're dealing with stomach flu or mal- even malaria at first. But then people develop rashes ar- around the face, the neck, the, the arms. Uh, they appear usually day five or seven of the 
symptomatic part of the disease. Their eyes become very red. Uh, they have chest pain, throat soreness. They have trouble breathing, swallowing. They start bleeding, including internal bleeding. And if you get significant bleeding from your stomach and intestines, you might just die of the disease. And all this stuff is very contagious. Scientists say that Ebola is extremely infectious. Uh, they think it's moderately contagious. Now, what the heck is the difference between the two? Well, because only a small amount of virus is needed to get you sick, mm -hmm. that makes it infectious. So it's very infectious. You get the infection. But Ebola hasn't been proven to be caught by every means. In other words, airborne Ebola is not thought to be a significant way to get the virus, So, like the, unlike the flu. So it's just moderately likely to be passed from person to person. Now, touching bodily fluids, well, that is actually a very bad idea, however. They can be infected by... You can be infected by other humans if, if they come in contact with body fluids uh, like urine and blood, uh, even tears from an infected person or contaminated objects, that uh, personal objects from a, uh, an infected person. There are a lot of unprotected health worker, healthcare workers out there, Doctors Without Borders, folks like that, that, that work in Africa, and they're susceptible to infection because they have this close contact with patients during treatment, and sure enough, a lot of medical workers did die of the disease back in 2014. Well, I just think it was very misunderstood at the point when it, it was first becoming... Well, we definitely weren't ready for rec it. Recognizing that this was something serious, they didn't understand the transmission. And they also didn't have the equipment to protect themselves. That was a big thing. Oh, 3M yeah. is a company that makes those uh, biohazard suits and the... the uh, head coverings, the right, hoodies, and, and the face shields, and the face masks, and they even make, you know, fancy respirators where right. they're just, you know, you're fully covered like a spaceman going to Mars. Yes. You know? That's very, very <laughs> it looks a lot like that. Really. Um, but they, you know, the folks over there treating these people didn't have any of this equipment. I think it, at the most you would see them with maybe... A Masks. thin pair of gloves, yeah. probably cheap gloves, and right. some surgical mask, which hardly protects from anything. That's very true. You know, and they they felt comfortable because they didn't understand how incredibly contagious this could be from all these things they were touching. Well, lessons, hard lessons, hard were lessons to learn. Sometimes yeah. you have to learn by trial and error. It's yeah. a terrible way to learn with when it comes to something like Ebola, but. That's the way it has to be sometimes. Now, Ebola is not transmissible if you don't have symptoms. That's unusual because with the flu, it is tr can be transmitted even before you begin to show symptoms. So that's right. interesting that it does that. It also is on if you've recovered from it, you're not contagious. So that's that's another thing. Although it's in um, male uh, seminal fluid, se uh, semen, uh, seems to r retain the virus. Yes. And so that, that for a number of months. For a number of months, That's right. right. And also, didn't they find <coughs> out that uh, tears? Yes, and tear tears, ducts? Had it. tears have, have it too. And uh, it was actually found in the eye of a doctor who returned to New York, actually changed the color of his eye to a, from brownish to green. So it was interesting. Incredible. Yeah. But then it, it flipped back. Yeah, and it? then, it, then it, it got better and it got he went better. back. So that was a bizarre symptom. There are it's a lot of bizarre stuff that goes on 
in Africa in terms of a lot of weird diseases that we're just not used used to. Now, the average case fatality rate for Ebola virus in West in the West Africa epidemic was about 50%. It probably would have been less if there had been access, more access to modern medical care like IV fluids and, mm-hmm. and other things like that. I mean, some people in remote areas probably just died from dehydration because of vomiting and sweating and internal bleeding, right. things like that. So uh, it didn't have to be maybe quite as as bad if there was more uh, supply or more supplies, Absolutely. more equipment. Absolutely, no, you're totally right. Now, the methods used uh, to treat Ebola patients are pretty much quarantine, early care using oral intravenous fluids for rehydration. That's uh, the World Health Organization recommendations. There are no licensed treatments that are proven capable of neutralizing the virus as of yet, but there are a range of therapies that are under development, including some things we talked about in 2014. And one of them is called ZMAP, Z-M-A-P-P, as an immune-based treatment with antibodies that can be given to people who are already sick with Ebola. And that's an experimental treatment. It seems to work in some people. Uh, there are some other antiviral drugs, similar to things that they used to treat herpes and things like that, in the research pipeline as well. Uh, people who have been given plasma donations from the blood of Ebola survivors. That seems to boost the body's immune response. So there are a number of different things that have been done that seem to have some effect. Well, the They're, good thing is is they've ha- actually had some time between the last major outbreak and what's happening now. Yeah, so they've had time to do the researchers research, have right. had a chance to figure out, you know, what can we do? What is this all about? How does it act? How does it transmit? What's our best uh, weapons against it for protection or treatment? So, I mean... Unfortunately, it is coming back, but I, I know there are vaccines on their yes. way over. Yes, there are actually a few experimental, experimental vaccines coming from a lot of different places, from China, from Russia, from Western Europe. Uh, there's only one that's being used in the current outbreak, and that's made by um, a American, an American company called uh-huh. Merck, or a, Merck. A, the financial pharmaceutical giant. Actually, I don't know if it's an American company, to be honest. Uh, according to the World Health Organization, the experimental Ebola vaccine has proven highly effective, or highly protective, quote protective, unquote, right. against the deadly virus. And that's a study that was conducted during the outbreak in West Africa. There were about 6,000 people who received the vaccine and apparently no Ebola cases recorded uh, in those people if they uh, got it within 10 days or so uh, after vac- vaccination. Merck Company is um, an American pharmaceutical company. And there you go. Thank you, honey. I was You're welcome. Now I know for sure. It is. Um, meanwhile, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there is a bit of a freaking out going on there right now because oh, there I'm are sure. three zones where there are outbra- where there are outbreaks of uh, cases of disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of them are in areas that are un populated or, or sparsely populated, right. but there's one in which there there's a provincial capital called Mebendaka, and that is a city that has 1.2 million people. Whoa. And down the, the river, the Congo River is uh, a capital, the capital of the, the Congo, I think, is Kinshasa, uh-huh. or, uh, that is a... 10 million Whoa. person city. Whoa. Yeah, population of 10 million. This is something that 
could easily be wow. could easily be a major major. What cities in our country epidemic. have ten million people? I know. Does, I, do you I'm, think New York City has ten million people? I yeah, they probably do. In term, I'm I looking guess it de- up. Determined uh, by the area City that we're talking about, I guess population. But it is amazing. I am a little surprised that there are so many people in these cities okay. in Africa. All right. Well, I have a 2016 uh, population for New York City, 8.55. 8.55. Million. And they're saying that Kinshasa, K-I-N-S-H-A, that has 10 million. That's pretty amazing. Well, in okay, any case. Okay, so wait. No, last year, it, it only had 8.6 million. So it went up a little bit, but not much. So 2017. That's New York. Yeah. New York City. Wow. Well, in any case, it is a concern that we have people that are sick that are in a large urban area with Ebola. As a matter of fact, there are travelers that are just getting onto the river and moving away from where the wherever the cases are being reported. I bet. Now, one other thing that's a problem in an urban area is that these people can quickly go either down the river or down roads to other places. There were indeed two dying Ebola patients that were spirited out of a Congo hospital by family members on motorbikes. They were taken to a prayer meeting with 50 other people, and they died within a few hours of that. Are you serious? That's right. And unfortunately, these people, both of the patients were vomiting. They were infectious. They were in a small area with 50 other people. They died hours after the prayer session. And sure enough, there is a lot, a lot of chances that somebody got infected. And Oh, my goodness. Somebody that was at this prayer meeting probably got infected. And you have to be aware that that's going to be a little scary. There are people that are going to possibly be the first case in a particular area, and it could be because they were zooming away from where the cases were being found. And just carried it with them. Absolutely. All it takes is one sick person to travel down the Congo River, and you can have outbreaks outbreaks in all sorts of different locations or all sorts of cities on the... On the trail, so to speak, or on the the river. river, Right, right, exactly. Well, that makes sense. Most communities and cities are usually started near water. I mean, it's just one of the things that we need as humans. So uh, most of the population is probably gathered near and around the water. Right. This uh, city, Mabindaka, which is a provincial capital of one million, Mm -hmm. uh, it is actually just down the river from the capital, Kinshasa. And and that's you know you're talking about so far at least eleven twelve million people at just, just right these, there just these these two cities and the areas in between. That's even more than if we added New York City, which has eight point five or six uh-huh. for 2017, and L.A. has just shy of four million. Yeah, I think that's something uh, that does surprise me that this Kinshasa is that big. It is Cong. In Congo, and it is wow. It says here it is now a mega city. Um, uh, this is Wikipedia. It was once a site of trading vis- villages and fishing villages. Now a mega city with an estimated population of more than eleven million. Eleven million. Wow. Well, go figure. All right. Well, I guess we just need to know a little bit more about geography, don't incredible. we? Incredible. That is really incredible. I'm I'm very surprised. So anyhow, 
let's go ahead and talk a little bit about other issues mm-hmm. that may confront you in in a remote area. Now, of course, in a remote area, that could be even a, a, a minimal infection could be a major problem. But imagine some of the major challenges that can occur, some challenges that relate to either wilderness exposure, some challenges that could be related to accidents while you're provide, uh, performing activities of daily survival. Give me an ax, make me chop wood, and I'm sure you'll see what I mean about <laughs> no, not a great major idea. Challenge, not health a challenges. Not a great idea. <laughs> Absolutely. And sometimes the challenge faced by the medic isn't from some external trauma like I would probably give myself, but internal problems so severe that even in normal times, there are limits to the options that are available for treatment. And yep. one issue that fits this description is what's known as a cerebrovascular accident, a CVA, CVA, also known as a stroke. Well, although modern medicine can do more for stroke victims than the old-timey pioneer medic, well, it's it's still important for an off-grid healthcare provider to recognize the signs and symptoms of a stroke and to act quickly to improve a victim's chances of survival. So what is actually a stroke? A stroke, or a CVA, is a medical event in which a blood vessel that supplies the brain with oxygen becomes blocked or leaks blood. Now, the effect is that tissue served by that blood vessel becomes starved of oxygen. Within a few short minutes, the region affected of the bra- region of the brain affected begins to die, and functions that are controlled by that part of the brain are lost or at least impaired. Now, uncontrolled high blood pressure, that's one. That's a major risk factor for a stroke. There are other predisposing factors, such, such as diabetes, tobacco, smoking, um, obesity, some heart irregularities like atrial fibrillation, some kinds of heart issues. And a sizable number of cases, honestly, they never find an actual cause. There's no obvious causes ever identified. And that's a shame because it is a very, very common issue. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, about 800,000 cases a year. And of those people that survive a stroke, the first event, many are left with significant permanent disability. Matter of fact, a percentage of folks that have a stroke don't even survive a year afterward. There are different types of stroke. The failure to provide oxygen-carrying blood to the brain can happen in a number of ways, but what two major ways. One, in which a blood clot obstructs a blood vessel that's needed to maintain circulation to the brain. That's called perfusion. And this is a type of stroke that's known as an ischemic stroke, I-S-C-H-E-M-I-C. It's a stroke related to the immediate loss of blood by a blood volume by a clot. And it's the most common type, actually. I think 87% of strokes are this type, ischemic strokes caused by a blood vessel uh, being obstructed by a clot. Then the other type is when blood from an artery, a vein, or an abnormal structure in the brain may leak, may burst and leak into blood tissue or the space sometimes between the brain and the membranes and cover it. This can happen due to trauma, blood thinning medication, and other causes known as a hemorrhagic stroke. Now, sometimes hemorrhage can occur in the area of an ischemic stroke uh, a little bit further down the line, and that blurs the line between the two types. 
Now, ischemic strokes, they can be caused by a number of different issues. A blood clot forms locally right in the brain. That causes obstruction. It's called a thrombosis. A, if a blood clot forms elsewhere in the body and travels throughout the circulation to lodge in the brain, the brain that's called a embolism. They're both blood clots, but one is coming from a different area and one's forming locally. So one's traveling, right? right? And that's a concern that some people had with some of the early blood clotting um, <clears throat> dressings is that little areas of the material in the blood clotting dressing or the powder or the granules. Granules, right. That was traveled, a big issue. Yeah, could the, get into the blood system and be moved and cause a, right. a clot somewhere right, else. Right, and get into a small blood vessel and cause a clot. And Not a problem now. I just no, want to be yeah. careful that we don't scare people who have these um, things in their house. That Right, very unlikely they, to happen now. And how they've developed them now is that... that the product is actually embedded or impregnated is the word they use commonly in a gauze. Right. So there are circumstances where you, that you can still pour granules in or you, or use well, a syringe. Well, not pour. It's, to yeah, put, there's a syringe. To put, uh, right. But uh, most of the time they're using dressings that are impregnated with the powders. Right. But I wouldn't, I would never be concerned about Celox A. The product that it's made for when it gets wet, it turns to gelatin. Yes. It does not harden and cause um, a dry clot. Right. That's Celox. Like other yes. products. Celox A. Yeah. Right. So I would not be concerned. And it's the only product now that is in the granules or powders uh, from the Celox and the quick clot lines. Yes. And you can find that over on our website at uh, store.doomandbloom.net. <clears throat> the third way that you can have an ischemic stroke is by a condition called hypoperfusion. What happens is an inadequate amount of blood gets to the brain because of, let's say, severe bleeding as in hemorrhagic shock. So, in other words, if I was uh, in the ocean, I was attacked by a shark, uh-huh. I may bleed so much that when they get me up there back in the boat, I, they find that I had not had enough blood go to my brain. Or that accident, uh, incident that you were just talking about a little while ago. Hitting yourself with an axe in the leg. And ble- yes, like that. Bleeding out, not having enough blood in your body to, to get to the brain. To give oxygen to the brain. Exactly right. <laughs> there you go. Now, hemorrhagic strokes, the second type of stroke, well, when blood leaks into brain <clears throat> tissue, it places pressure on these sensitive brain cells, and that causes significant damage. A hemorrhagic stroke can be caused by very uncontrolled high blood pressure. Uh, can be caused less commonly by a malformation of a blood vessel known as an aneurysm. I think you had a family member who well, had that. You know, it's funny. That's what they said she had. I mean, how would they really know? I don't. I'm not sure how much of an autopsy they actually did. But she was 40 years old. She got out of bed to go get a glass of water, and just killed over. Dropped to wow. the floor. By the time my uncle got to her, she was gone. They put her on life support for a couple of days, but once they found out her brain had no activity. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, did she have high blood off. pressure, I wonder? <clears throat> you know, I'm I'm sure she did. I'm almost positive. I was I was young. I was like 17. Um, but she, yeah, just suddenly. And every, they did say this was the family explanation was that she had an aneurysm. All right, well, an aneurysm is a weakness in a vessel wall, blood, the wall of a blood vessel. It looks like a tiny balloon. If you have ever seen old cartoons or, or 
of or have seen old tires from like 100 years ago, those tires were thin enough so that sometimes the inner tube would actually go through a bald spot on it. It looked like a little balloon. Bulge, right. A little bulge or a little balloon. Mm -hmm. And if that bursts, a catastrophic bleed into brain tissue can occur. It looks sort of like that. <clears throat> now, certain medications suppress blood clotting, and they may increase the risk for a hemorrhagic stroke. And I mentioned this as a nod to my dad, who survived a heart attack only to have a hemorrhagic stroke from blood thinners that were given to him in the aftermath. Which they overdosed him on. Well, he... And it, they admitted they did that. In any case, he died a few weeks later. As a result, it was a... Uh, a terrible thing for him. I mean, you know, to have a heart attack, survive it, and then die of a stroke <sighs> from the medicine you were given. So we always have to be aware and be, always ask questions about what they're doing for you. Read the article mm. that Joe Alton wrote on patient, what would you call it, patient, patient advocacy? Patient advocacy, yes. Patient advocacy. You always have to be an advocate for family members. That is something <clears throat> very, very important. Exactly. All right, so hemorrhagic Strokes can occur in a couple of different places in the brain tissue itself, and that's called an intracerebral hemorrhage, and that's the most common type of hemorrhagic stroke. But it can also occur between the brain and the little membrane, the, the thin membranes that surround it. And it, your brain has a covering, but brain matter has a covering, dura matter, pia matter, there are all sorts of different medical names for it, but you have layers of membranes that are on top of your brain that help protect it. Now, of course, if there's bleeding that occurs, that bleeding can occur between the brain itself and these membranes. And sometimes that happens because of injury and, some, and trauma. And sometimes it happens because of other, other issues. But it can cause a significant amount of blood <clears throat> to press upon brain tissue, right. sort of from outside the brain itself, and press inward on it and cause significant problems. Now, some people have a lesser version or a, a more transient version, and it's actually called a transient ischemic attack, and that's otherwise known as a mini-stroke is what it's commonly called, and that is a more short-term event that can present as either minimal, it could be presented as just minimal symptoms or it could be very significant symptoms, but they're transient in nature. In other words, they disappear for the most part within a couple hours, maybe three or four hours or so. But the problem with this is that, I mean, you dodge a bullet in that you are okay at the moment, but it's impossible to know, number one, whether you're dealing with a major stroke or a TIA unless the person gets better very quickly. <clears throat> so as a medic, you're not going to know exactly what you're dealing with for a while. But, and those people who actually have just the transient ischemic attack, the TIA, even if all the symptoms disappear, they're at higher risk for a major stroke in the near future. As a matter of fact, probably within the next few months. Now, I actually have on the website an article about strokes in general, and there's a story by an actual real person of her TIA experience that I linked to from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and I think you should read it. It's important to be able to recognize it, and sometimes hearing somebody else's story as to what happened when they had it can sort of give you a clue as to what might be happening with you, God forbid. Now, identifying a stroke, the CDC has compiled a list of symptoms that point the medic to the diagnosis of a stroke. Now, these signs are often unmistakable, but and by learning them, 
quick action could save lives and, and restore function, especially in situations where, indeed, you can get people to a modern medical unit. Now, stroke victims will often experience the onset of a severe headache. They may have a sudden onset of numbness or weakness affecting usually one side of the face, an arm or a leg, or all three. Uh, they will, they'll have trouble speaking or maybe have an inability to understand what you're saying. They may have difficulty with vision in one or both eyes. They'll be confused, suddenly confused, suddenly very dizzy. They may have trouble walking. Uh, they may have sudden loss of coordination. And so these are very, very common signs that if you see them and they happen suddenly, these are things that remind you of a stroke. Now, the CDC recommends you memorizing something called the FAST paradigm, F-A-S-T, a simple way to help with stroke diagnosis and treatment. Face, F stands for face. Tell the person to smile. Does one side of the face sag? That's something. Arms, you have a person <clears throat> raise both of their arms and see if one of them droops. Speech, have the victim say a common phrase. Does it sound sort of strange or slurred, uh, like the way I say things sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> if it sounds like me, they may I, have had a stroke. I know what your problem is. Yeah. I know exactly. Your problem is that your brain works too fast for your mouth. Oh, absolutely. I have a slow mouth and a fast brain. <laughs> it's and true. They don't coordinate all the time. Right. So I've <laughs> got okay. F-A-S. That's face, arms, speech, and T for time. Call 911 right away if you notice any of these symptoms. Of course, Survival Medicine Hour will help. In some circumstances, this just won't be an option, especially if you're off the grid. Right. Now, it's important to note when symptoms started and when the victim was last seen well. Actually, it determines um, at the stroke units whether they use certain types of treatments or not. So it is important to know that. And it's important uh, to know that the longer the time frame between well, being well, and being debilitated, the more likely there's going to be long-term term consequences. Now, the presentation of a stroke victim is oftentimes so striking that you can't miss it. So if you're an observant medic, you're going to be able to make the diagnosis very quickly. And so what's the rapid action that you could possibly take? The majority of CVAs or strokes are ischemic in nature. We mentioned that. And so that caused by blood clots. So in normal times, a patient with this type of stroke can be treated with, uh, there's a powerful actually IV therapy called TPA that helps break up clots. And there are procedures, surgical procedures, might be successful in removing the clot that's actually blocking the circulation. If you do it quick enough, you might regain uh, some function of that area. Now, in the absence of modern medical facilities, of course, you may be stuck with lesser treatments, things like blood thinners, like aspirin. It could be of use if no aspirin is available. Salicin, for example, from the underbark, the green underbark of willow trees will have a similar effect. Cut off a few strips to chew them, make a tea out of them, do something like that. It might be helpful. Now, it should be noted that if the stroke is a hemorrhagic stroke, the one that's the, the minority of strokes, those strokes may actually worsen if you use blood thinners like aspirin. So you may be in between a, hard, a rock and a hard place. These can be identified, but usually with scans and brain, brain tests and all kinds of other stuff. I just want to bring up this one situation when we were in New York City. We were at a conference. Do you uh -huh. remember that in a small room? Oh, yes, I remember that. And the guy was sitting in a chair, and one second later, he just fell over Yep. with the chair. 
Both of them went sideways. He smacked his head on the floor, and he was just mostly gone. Yeah, he was very... Unable to speak. I think he was grunting a little bit. Right. Uh, His face was just totally droopy. I'm not sure he could even open his eyes from what I remember. And he couldn't move anything. You're right. And this person here actually managed to get better once he was at the hospital. His wife got in touch with us. Mm -hmm. And basically, I think within a day or two, he was almost fine. I mean, he went home in a couple days. Went home. So he may have had a transient ischemic attack. Yeah, he he may have had a transient ischemic attack. A TIA wouldn't surprise me. Uh, at the big, first, I thought he was having a seizure, but then yeah, he did kind of move around yeah, a, little a little bit, bit, and then he just sort of went right. Lo- it was like sudden, a so, noodle, like a wet noodle. So there was something. This, this is the type of person that, in normal times, you definitely need a brain scan. Neither uh, you nor I thought he was going to survive this. I mean, right. he was so incredibly. Yeah, it's just amazing. It. It's a miracle that he was able to get better. I and, and oh, completely better. I think he ended up going to some um, event they had at the conference uh, two or three days later. Wow. A dinner or lunch or something. Yeah, she showed up. Oh, that's awesome. It was yeah. just un- unbelievable. You and I were shocked. So it can happen. Miracles do happen. That's right. People do get better from things that you think there's no return from. Now, the hemorrhagic strokes, of course, some of these are caused by elevated blood pressures, so antihypertensive meds may help. Yes, keep your blood pressure down. Keep your blood pressure down. If there is no other message that you get from this other than that fast. Yeah, F-A-S-T. Remember that fast. Repeat it one more time. Fast, face, face. Check the face. Check the arms. See if they droop. Speech. Check their speech. Give them something to say. And time. And time. Get them to modern help ASAP. ASAP. So don't forget fast. But the other thing that I really seriously would like you guys to leave this show from is keep your blood pressure down. Keep your friends and your family's blood pressure down. And if somebody does have high blood pressure, try not to... Piss them off. <laughs> Don't poke the yeah, bear. Yeah. Don't poke the bear. Yeah, Amy. You, <laughs> I, yeah. Hey, I have high blood pressure too, okay? <laughs> well. um, you know, be happy. Don't put too much salt in the food. Yep. Uh, keep lay everybody... on your left side. If you lay on yes. your left side, your blood pressure is usually at its lowest. Keep everybody active and moving. I don't mean you have to join a gym and go for three hours a day. Nobody can do that except, I don't know, when you're 16. But keep active. We walk. We try to walk yes. uh, every day if we can, Absolutely. as long as it's not pouring yes. <laughs> outside. Which has been doing and sometimes we, for a while. Sometimes we do go to a mall when it's uh, yep. quite hot in the summer yep. and walk. Try not to Just to walk. Walk, but not shop. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's not only medical health, but financial health. Exactly. <laughs> so keep go. active. Watch the salt. Of course, watch your weight uh, as much as you possibly can. Right, um, that's a risk factor. And take your your blood pressure medicine. And if you have a lot of side effects from your blood pressure medicine, talk to your doctor or your nurse practitioner. And there are many, many options out there. Change it. I was having a problem with the uh, Divan was causing me terrible heartburn. And I said, I'm, you know, the only time I ever had heartburn was when I was pregnant. So I changed. But then I found a medicine. I take Ramipril. I think you still take a little... Do you still take Divan? Yes. No, Ramipril. And you take Norvask also. Yes. Which doesn't, well, I don't know. You get a lot of heartburn. (laughs) It could be causing it. But the big 
The big issue here is keeping your blood pressure within a normal range. That's super, right. super important. So don't grab the salt shaker and uh, move around as much as possible. Now, if a family member of yours has a stroke, remember <clears throat> that recovery from a stroke is not impossible. Uh, a National Stroke That's Association right. reports that at least 10% will experience almost a complete recovery. Another 25 will experience almost a complete recovery, minor impairments only, and a, a large percentage also will experience some improvements. So most recovery does occur soon after a stroke, according to some reports, but improvements may still occur over a longer period of time, especially if that person can get to rehabilitation. I mean, let's face it, with the, with the lack of modern medical facilities in the aftermath of a disaster, hard reality is that major medical events like strokes may be very difficult to deal with. I mean, this is one of the hard realities that we deal with in a survival setting. But the medic's motto has to be, do what you can with what you have That's right. where you are. And if you can do that, then you'll give people the best chance of staying healthy under your watch. Great advice, darling. Hey, you know that we are part of the expert council of our good friend Jack Spierko's survival podcast, the granddaddy of all survival and preparedness podcasts. And we get questions from time to time from some of his listeners, who are also our listeners, about different types of issues. And we have one here from Bob in Texas who asks about the longevity of various medications if they wind up in his car over the hot Texas summer. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Bob in Texas who asks, how does heat affect the medications in my vehicle first aid kit? I put together first aid kits for each of our vehicles and it concerns me that they sit in the vehicle in the hot summer sun in Texas. What effect does the heat have on medications like ibuprofen, acetaminophen, aspirin, and first aid creams like neosporin? What can I do to mitigate any negative effects and how often should I replace them? Thanks to Doc Bones and Nurse Amy for bringing such extensive medical knowledge to the expert council. Well, thank you very much. I am flattered. Bob, try as you might, it is hard to find medicines and other health products that don't caution against storage at high temperatures. As a matter of fact, most specify storing at room temperature. The FDA says that 75 degrees is the ideal temperature, although I would even say a little cooler would be better. Other factors that increase drug life are low humidity, keep them dry, and avoidance of light, keep them dark. So, what happens if you can't keep medicines at the recommended temperature like you would with, say, a vehicle kit in the Texas sun? Well, for antiseptics like alcohol or betadine wipes, they'll likely dry out pretty quickly, so you're going to have to replace these pretty regularly. Certainly, I don't think they'll last more than one summer. Now, for things like neosporin, there are probably few ill effects from using meds that have been in a hot vehicle. That is, you won't grow a horn in the middle of your forehead from using medicines like that, but you will lose some potency of the drug. Drugs that are stored at 90 degrees Fahrenheit lose potency probably twice as fast as those stored at 50 degrees. Now, that's a big deal if it's medicine that you need at 100% effectiveness. 
I wish I could give you more specific data on all this stuff, but studies on drug effectiveness are based on proper storage. So companies have little incentive to perform studies that are on medicines that are stored improperly. It's much easier to just say you shouldn't use them and get fresh items. Now, having said that, a study was done in 2004 by the American College of Chest Physicians in which a common inhaled asthma medication delivered half of its expected dosage after being exposed to 150-degree temperatures for just four hours. Well, let's face it, you shouldn't leave any medicine in a locked car on a 100-degree summer day. I would be most concerned, however, about medications that are in liquid, cream, or ointment form than solid pills or capsules. You may have to replace ointments and creams and liquids, perhaps maybe every few months or every couple of months, especially in warm weather. Try to keep drugs and medicine cabinets inside, but not in bathrooms and also beware of storing on top of refrigerators. The refrigerators tend to be warm and bathrooms tend to be too humid. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook on Amazon or at our website at doomandbloom.net, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. That's all the time we have for this week's episode of The Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton and that Amy Alton. <laughs> beautiful, wonderful <I'm> here. <laughs> Amy Alton. She is here. Sipping my and tea. And we will be here next week, so don't forget to tune in. Always check. <clears throat> One more thing. Uh oh, what? Happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Thank Day. Thank you all, veterans, active and retired. We appreciate your service. Thank you so much. Including my dad. <laughs> Absolutely. And mine, too. Thank you. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.